Hello, everybody. Welcome to another DC Spotlight collaboration between the Comic Source and Comic Boom. This is for the week of May 18th, 2021. We're going to be talking about the books coming out today. Uh, but before we get into the books, Rocky, uh, have you heard anything maybe on the grapevine going on with uh, DC or Warner Brothers that we might want to comment on? Well, uh, yeah, well, I'm sh I know you've heard the same thing because you're the one that told you know, I, I actually heard it from you first that, yeah, I guess AT&T is uh, deciding to they, they're passing the buck of their media, I guess, of their the media to Discovery, another one of their companies. And uh, which which hopefully will, you know, they've they've decided to stick with telephones and telecommunications and, and leave media and, and comic books to uh, people that are maybe more qualified to handle it <laughs> or or not. I don't know what maybe maybe yeah. tell yeah what's going on like so yeah uh AT&T has decided to spin off Warner Brothers Warner Media the company they bought for 85 billion dollars and then spent <laughs> I got to think spent at least another 3 or 400 million on legal fees fighting against the previous uh presidential administration to allow that purchase to go through um, because they just had to have their own, you know, entertainment company. And they discovered that it's not as easy to run an entertainment company as maybe they thought. So here's, here's the bottom line. And this is what I've been talking about for years. It's what I said way back in early 2018, when the rumors first started that AT&T was going to purchase Warner media. AT&T is the worst run company in the world. There can be no doubt of that. They purchased, <laughs> Direct TV for 140 billion, I believe, <laughs> right when everybody was cutting the cable, you know, everybody was, was cutting the cord, getting rid of their pay television, streaming was rising, and they apparently couldn't see the writing on the wall, and they, they paid way too much for Direct TV, and it was a huge weight around their neck. And then, uh, well, we have Direct TV, and the reason it's not working, we don't have enough content, let's buy Warner Media. For 85 billion like who, who's making these decisions that you know they, they spun off direct tv because here's the thing right when it's under the at&t corporate umbrella all that red ink is is on at&t it's on their books it, it's on their you know accounts and it doesn't look good and that's why the at&t stock has been in the toilet for five years so they said hey we're gonna they tried to sell it unsuccessfully. They tried to sell DirecTV unsuccessfully. So earlier this year in February, they said, we're just going to spin it off back into its own company. They still technically own it. AT&T still tech. They're, they're just like a big shareholder. It's no different if you or I bought up a bunch of shares. So technically, they could do you know a hostile takeover uh, and, and in that way bring DirecTV back under the umbrella if they wanted to because they are the biggest shareholder in direct tv but by spinning it up back off into its own separate corporate entity it's different in terms of tax purposes and it's different in terms of liability but most importantly it is its own company when it comes to its debt so at&t no longer looks terrible because they have all this debt that, from direct tv well now they've decided they're going to do the same thing with warner brothers but but to, to sweeten the pie even more Instead of just spinning Warner Media off on its own, they went to Discovery Media, which is its own company, and they said, hey, Discovery Media, are you interested in purchasing 
a significant share of Warner Media, right? Uh, Discovery is not buying Warner Brothers. They're not buying Warner Media. They're just buying a portion of it, about 30% yeah. almost. And so what that means is AT&T gets a big cash influx, right? Which is good for them. And they get rid of all that debt. That debt, just like with DirecTV, that debt is no longer on Warner Brothers books. The debt is now under this new company, which we don't even know the name. I imagine it'll probably be something like Discovery Warner, Discovery Warner Media, something like that yeah. uh, is my guess. Warner uh, or AT&T rather will, will maintain about 70, 71% shareholder. Uh, they'll be far and away the biggest shareholder in that company, but they could sell shares if they want. And again, the biggest thing is they are no longer involved in the day-to-day -day operations. That's what's important when it comes to comic book fans and fans of Warner Brothers media and properties. AT&T is no longer in charge of the day-to-day -day operations. They have nothing to do with hiring, firing, uh, what content is being produced by Warner Media, none of that. That's all going to be assumed by the, the president of Discovery, who obviously an entertainment company, you know, they, they do uh, HGTV and you know, uh, a bunch of other, uh, obviously Discovery Channel and they have Discovery Plus streaming service. I mean, the bottom line is they're in the entertainment business. Yeah. They're not making fiber optic or laying fiber optic cable and, and creating, you know, telecommunications networks and software and building cell phones and that kind of thing. Um, well, that's why you know, I heard that most of the independent analysis from what I've read in numerous articles since this morning, when you brought it to my attention was, most people, most, a lot of commentators seem generally positive about it. They think this might be better in the long run, uh, particularly perhaps even for comic books, because, you know, it's probably better that, that AT&T stay out of a business that they really didn't know anything about in the first place. You know, it might be some further restructuring that, we, that they already went through, but it might be better in the long run. Uh, at least that's what I'm hoping anyway. So, yeah, I, I think a know. lot of, yeah, a lot of people are hoping that I have seen a few people that are are worried because again this is this is another big shakeup before the ground has has barely settled at, at dc so yeah. I, I certainly wouldn't expect any more firings um I, I have heard some commentators say the fat that was trimmed at warner brothers needed to be trimmed regardless of who did it you know if warner brothers them, themselves had done it if at&t does it if discovery does it it doesn't matter it needs to be done could they possibly hire Possibly. I've also heard people that are worried that um, it's going to be all about what makes money. I mean, Dis Discovery Media, they still got they're still a business. They still want to make money. Right. And they're worried that things are going to get licensed out or, or whatnot. I, I kind of don't think that's the case. The head of Discovery, uh, he very much is uh, he he seems passionate about creating things right like yes he's the ceo of a major corporation yes he's beholden to stockholders yes he's got to be sure that the business side runs smoothly but there's something to be said for a person who's a ceo of a, of a entertainment company he knows the best way to help the bottom line is to create good content so yeah. I, I i spent a good hour this morning doing some research on him trying to find out if he ever talked about comic books if he'd ever you know they're had been some news story about him being at a comic convention or anything. I couldn't find anything, but it doesn't mean that he's not aware uh, that the comic branch is more than just an IP for him. That, well, that's what we want. Well, the thing is, though, isn't Discovery, though, I read that Discovery was sort of getting increasingly diminishing returns on its ratings. I mean, aren't they like 
HDTV, there is not like home renovations and uh, like the Discovery Planet and animal shows and Animal Planet. Well, they've, got, they've got a they've got a ton of channels beyond just those two main ones. Um, they had a, a big hit in the last few years with 90 Day Fiance. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, that. No, uh, I'm not. That program. Uh, yeah. Uh, better, better that you, better that you aren't. Um, but yeah, obviously HGTV has had some, you know, fixer upper and whatnot. They've had some big hits too. Right. Property Brothers is another big one. So yeah, I, I just they, don't they, know they, if they, it's a good fit. I just don't know if it's a good fit. And I think the jury's still out on that. I mean, I don't, I mean, Discovery, when I think of Discovery Channel, it doesn't exactly cry out in sync with superhero comic books. But then I suppose in theory, neither did AT&T. So probably it's better than AT&T as a, as a, as a, as a corporation for handling uh, intellectual property, uh, the likes of Superman and superheroes and the stuff that. Well, that's, yeah, that's a big part of the reason why Discovery wanted to do this. They're they're acutely aware that they they're programming. They're not into the scripted programming, right? Like most of their stuff is, quote unquote, reality television. You know, they're not these premium scripted programs. Like you know, don't forget HBO. Uh, you know, Game of Thrones and and whatnot, and they're a bunch of their critically acclaimed uh, content. And that's really what where where Discovery wants to go. They want to get into that, and this was the opportunity for them to do that. So I have full faith that they're going to spend the money. They've already said they're, they, their goal is to rival Netflix. They're, they're going to be spending money on content to bring content over. They're going to be spending money to develop their own content, much like Netflix does. So I, from that aspect, I think it, if you're at Warner Media, you got to be pretty happy about this. Yeah, well, they, they can't they, do they can't do any worse a job than CW, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 this is the other thing, like a lot of people haven't been happy with the job that I think his name is Stanky, has, the CEO of Warner Brothers, has been doing. There's speculation on whether or not he was going to leave or stay. The latest I saw was he's probably leaving. There's rumors that his you know his, he's already hired a legal team to negotiate his uh, you know his, his leaving this new company or whatnot. I'm sure he'll get a big payout for very little work. Uh, but I, I think this is a good thing for Warner media, but again, we know, and I've talked about this so many times, just because something is good for the comic book, uh, television properties and movie properties and whatnot, doesn't mean it's necessarily good for the comics. And we're so far down the chain, um, in terms of a priority and, and, uh, revenue that that's what I, that's what I worry about. I, I, I'm hoping for the best. Anything that we really say right now about how this could directly affect DC Comics is, would be pure speculation. I'm like Rocky. I'm trying to look at it as, as glass half full. I kind of feel like ATT was the bottom of the barrel, and it, it really could, can't go much lower than that. So I'm hoping this, this purchase, <laughs> this merger with Discovery would, will be a good thing. Stay positive, um, my friend. Yeah, I mean – one thing we haven't heard, Pamela Lyford, the Warner uh, Media executive who's in charge of DC, haven't heard her name, don't know. I mean, it, if she gets moved on to something else, fingers crossed, you know, that'll give me even more hope. But at this point, it's just it's just it's really too early to say. And just like I said, when when the merger or when the AT&T acquisition finally went through uh, in late 2019, I said, we're not going to know for a while what's going to happen right, early 2019 we're not going to know for a while what the fallout of this is and sure enough it wasn't until you know it was early 2020 then 
Didio got left go, and then the uh, first round of layoffs, and then the second round of layoffs. It took a year, you know, the, the AT&T executives wanted to take stock of what they had and kind of see the lay of the land. It may not take that long for uh, this merger with Discovery to go through and for changes to happen because Discovery is an entertainment uh, company, like we said. So maybe they will be able to assess it much quicker because they know what they're lo actually looking at. Um, but I'm, I'm choosing to look at this as a positive. Uh, AT&T not owning Warner Brothers, not owning DC Comics, uh, not well. I mean, they're still the, the majority stakeholder, like I said, but they're not making operational day-to-day -day decisions. That can only be good. I, I can't see how a merger and becoming their own company with Discovery could make it any worse. We can't get much worse than Future State. I feel like that was the bottom of the barrel, and we can't. I, I, we got to be on the upswing. I mean, all it all it takes is this CEO of Discovery to say, "I don't. I know what I don't know." I know I don't know comics, and I'm going to tap Jimmy Palmiotti to run DC Comics. I'm gonna, I just I want know. him to show a little bit of passion. You know, AT and T didn't show any passion for comics. They didn't even they didn't even give it a token attempt to appoint somebody that seemed to be excited about it or be a good spokesperson for comic books. Jim Lee is as silent as ever. Lifford never uh, never talks. I mean. Put put a spokesperson out there, like a you know, say what you will about Dan Didio. He at least got out there and he he talked comic books and he got people excited and he he at least went through the motions of pretending that he loved it. And of course, he did love it. He loved the industry, and that's what we need. And hopefully, Discovery will realize the the diamond that they now have in their new backyard, and that is DC Comics. Yeah, and you know, here's the thing that that a lot of people by by doing this. AT&T is basically saying, I mean, they're admitting that they screwed up. So again, I go back to my very first statement. AT&T is the worst run company on the planet. And they've lost 200, over $200 billion with, with these two purchases, DirecTV and WarnerMedia. And, you know, th their CEOs are, are not suffering at all. They're still making millions. I, I wish I could screw up so badly in my job and, and still reap the benefits. But um, yeah, I mean, I agree. They're in a great position. Discovery Media is in a great position to, you know, Dave, David Zaslov is the, the CEO's name. If he wants to, he, he could be known as the man that saved DC, the man that saved Superman. Uh, so, David, if you're listening, I don't know why you would be, but <laughs> I'm available to run DC Comics. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people. I may not know the, the business side of it as intimately as others, but God damn it. Nobody cares more about DC Comics than me. I'd make that argument. I'm a quick learner. I work cheap, so <laughs> hit me up. Hit me up on Twitter. I'm well, throwing my hat. You, you know, you know more than AT and T, my friend. I, I would go with you before <laughs> AT and T. So I, I, I think you already have an advantage. Uh man, it would be a hell of a job. I would. It would be a huge challenge, and I would probably <laughs> piss off as many people as I would make happy, because that's just the role of a publisher. I, I would definitely be in the the Didio mold. Um, but yeah, it would be. It would be an adventure. I'd be willing to. There's not a lot of jobs that I would be willing to leave my current job for, but but that's one of them. So, <laughs> all right. Well, you want to talk about some comics now? Uh, I felt like it was a pretty solid week once again from DC. One of the better weeks that we've we've had in a while. How'd you feel about the the books, Rocky? I did. I I like this. I I thought it was a solid week as well. You know, I I gotta say, you know, for as uh, as as sporadic and as maybe as uh, divisive as maybe Future State was in some circles, I I still say that uh, 
you know, DC's DC's doing. I think they're doing reasonably good here. I'm I'm being entertained. I'm still more entertained than I was prior to Death Metal. I'm still more entertained, and I I like this. And at least my complaints about going into future state are, uh, I think, generally. Uh, complaints that can be easily uh, undone, easily fixed, and I, the positives still outweigh the negatives to me moving forward. So, yeah, I don't know that I could say that I'm more satisfied. I think these are better than than prior to Death Metal. I, I think that the books are more inconsistent than before Death Metal. I'll say that the highs are higher, but the lows are lower. Uh, there's a much a greater disparity. You know, we've got awesome books like Nightwing. And then we've got, you know, other books like Future State Gotham that are, you know, why, why, who's yeah. making it? Well, and Future why. State Gotham so, is really bad. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. So, no but anyway, let's talk about uh, the third issue of Tom Taylor's Nightwing, uh, Leaping into the Night Part Three, written by the aforementioned Tom Taylor. Art is by Bruno Redondo. Colors by Adriana Lucas, letters by uh, Wes Abbott, and oh my God, that that variant cover by I think it's Jamal Campbell that did the variant cover. Yeah, yeah, Jamal Campbell. Um, That's just, just incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. That- with the wires, it's so creative, man. It's so creative with him yep. doing on the wiring thing there, and with the Nightwing symbol and the and the coloring, just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, the, and the color uh, Jamal probably did. He usually does his own color work, so he probably did the colors on that. But the, the colors by Adriana Lucas and in, in, you know on the interiors are gorgeous as well. Absolutely. So, uh, yes. but yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that when it's uh, when it's my turn to talk about the book. But uh, I've been talking a lot, so you go first, Rocky. What do you think of Nightwing <laughs> number eighty? I, I love it. I mean, you and I have sounded like broken records every time we've we've talked about Nightwing and we're in the third issue and it looks like we're going to sound the same like we did in the previous two issues pretty much. Uh, this is actually, I thought the first issue couldn't be topped, uh, but boy, oh boy, I, I love the way the stakes are being raised here. Tom Taylor, man, his use of dialogue and the, his characterization is spot on. Uh, I mean, here, right away, I mean, I, I love the way this issue even opens up with, uh, you know, Dick Grayson, you know, being woken up with, you know, his his, do- his dog barking. I don't know. I get, is the dog's name Bitewing now? Has, have, have the fans decided what the dog's name is? Is, is it Bitewing? I, am- <laughs> so I think I think it's Haley. Like oh, it Haley, Haley Circus. <laughs> okay. I think that's who that's that's who what won the poll. OK, so I think it's Haley. But then Bitewing is like its secret. Superhero. Yeah. I, I like so Bitewing. I'm going to go with Bitewing. But in any event, yeah. event uh, he's woken up uh, and it appears that, uh, that the, our last issue, the the person that he helped, um, 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 Martin Holt, uh, he helped a guy named Martin Holt and his son a uh, last issue when he was on a, uh, when he was having pizza with uh, with Barbara Gordon. And he just, he's deciding he, he was going to try to help some people with his money. And he got a hotel room for this average Joe on the street and, Unfortunately, this poor guy, Martin Holt, ended up having his heart ripped out by this heartless villain who premiered last issue, Speculation Alert. And uh, now, of course, uh, he's the last person to see this person because he, uh, the police, uh, they're knocking on his door. And there's, you know, so here we have Dick Grayson calling on Barbara Gordon to come back to his apartment. She stays there really late. He's it's it's five o'clock in the afternoon. Dick Grayson is sleeping because he sleeps during the day and because he, he has nocturnal activities at night, of course, because he's Nightwing. So the cops are right away suspicious. 
Barbara Gordon comes back and the rapport and the conversation between the police when they're sort of quasi interrogating Dick Grayson with Barbara Gordon sitting there. And my favorite part of the, one of my favorite scenes, there's a number of scenes. My favorite scene, one of them in the comic is when they ask Dick Grayson, what's his relationship? You know, what, what's your relationship with Bar- Barbara Gordon? And, <laughs> and, and he basically says, I actually, that's a good question. I was hoping to get an answer myself, but not, not during an interrogation. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it was just, just the dialogue is so well. I, I, I'm obviously I'm not doing it justice. Tom Taylor, he just nails the dialogue and the report between these two. Uh, Tim Drake is introduced. I mean, lovers of Tim Drake. I mean, you know, in that debate, who's the best Robin, Dick Grayson, Tim Drake, or Damien, or Jason Todd? Well, we're getting so much Batman love. You know, there's a reason why the Batman family is so popular. Here we get Tim Drake. Tim Drake is a lot of people's favorite Robins. Even Dick Grayson acknowledges that in this issue. And Tim Drake comes on scene and goes on undercover into the into the neighborhood to sort of infiltrate, to, to, to try to find uh, Martin Holt's son, who, of course, uh, who witnessed his... Uh, was there when his dad was uh, killed by Heartless. And is this is just so, such great character work. The fighting, the fight scenes, Bruno Redunder's art in, in orchestrating and, and, and artistically scripting the, the, uh, the choreographed fight scenes, just incredible. The, the rapport that Tim Drake and Nightwing have when they fight together was so beautifully artistically rendered by Bruno Redondo. Beautiful colors again, you said, by uh, Adriano um, uh, Lucas. Man, it was just so impressive. This thing, this set was the total package. We got great characterization, great action. We got, we got gravitas. We've, there's, there's a lot at stake here. And, uh, again, just extremely, extremely impressed with this. I'm so on board. Art's fantastic. You mentioned the fantastic uh, cover arts. Uh, bo- both cover A and cover B are incredible. Cover B in particular. I mean, the way they did that Nightwing symbol, the colors. Wow. I don't know, man. I just uh, I'm running out of adjectives. I got to get a I got to get a thesaurus to come up with cinnamons here to come up for how do you say awesome in ten different ways? Yeah, I mean, I'm not the biggest dick grayson fan i i I am a dick grayson fan but i mean i know people a a significant number of people who he's their favorite dc character you know um his his relentless positivity and in a different way than like a wally west or a barry allen uh you know a little more grounded in in reality but just the heroism that he displays the courage the integrity i mean I, i see all that in him but he's still not my favorite uh dc character and i've uh, you know, I don't always collect Nightwing. It's one of those books where I'll I, I'll come in for a while, I'll s- certain creators on it, stay for a while, and then I'll leave. And it's not something I've I've you know collected. And so, you know, this was one where I only jumped on Nightwing because of Tom Taylor. Yeah. So I was like, well, you know, let's see what Tom Taylor does and Bruno Redondo with uh, with Nightwing because I'm curious. Um, and and especially when you tell me it's Bruno Redondo doing the line work and Adriana Lucas on colors. Because I've talked many, many times about what an incredible job Bruno and Adriano did on the Justice League annual, number one, during Scott Snyder's run. It's set in space at the source wall, and it's just incredible. And uh, so I'm like, okay, well, we've got this art team. We've got Tom Taylor. Let me see what's what's happening. And I got hooked, right? Like right from the beginning, right? Like Tom Taylor did such a great job with issue 78, with the whole letter from Alfred and pulling out the, the heartstrings and whatnot. 
And Rocky's right. It's only it's somehow it's only gotten better. Uh, I mean, this issue is is incredible. There's some really wonderful character moments. Uh, Rocky mentioned the one with the police interrogation. There's another one later on that had me laughing out loud, where uh, Tim Drake's going undercover trying to find the the kid whose dad got his heart cut out by this heartless uh, supervillain, and Tim is talking to uh, to Dick over the the communications, and he doesn't realize that Barbara can hear. And Tim wants the skinny, like, so what's going on? I uh, heard Bab stayed the night. And, uh, and Dick's response is, yeah, I slept on the couch. <laughs> to which Tim says, oh, I see. And then Barbara interjects, you know I'm on this channel, right? Mm. And <laughs> it's such a great expression on Tim's face as he kind of grimaces and says, well, I do now. So, <laughs> it, you know, it's little moments like that uh, that are so just human, you know, and relatable. Uh, you know, Tim totally stuck his foot in his mouth there, not realizing that uh, Barbara in her, her oracle role was uh, was listening in on on the conversation. So uh, it's moments like that from Tom Taylor that endear these characters to us and uh, and make us care. Uh, and that's on top of kind of the exciting overall story with this uh, supervillain Heartless, who we, we haven't learned much about, but uh, really cool character design from Bruno Redondo. And uh, again, I got to call out Adriano Lucas's colors. Uh, he was my uh, color artist of the year, uh, not last year, but the year before for his work uh, with Eddie Barrows on the, uh, the Freedom Fighters uh, miniseries that Robert Venditti wrote. Uh, and his, his color work is exquisite. It's just so good. And it, it brings the best out of Redondo's line work, which I feel like Redondo, I, you know, again, impressed with what he did on the Justice League annual. I'm glad he has a regular gig. I felt like the artwork was pretty strong that that right from the start, right from issue 78. Uh, and probably because he had a lot of time to, to work on it. But I st there were still little things here or there that I thought that he could do better. Well, he's he's done it. He's gotten better. You can tell he's getting more comfortable with these characters, with this story, probably with the way uh, he's working and collaborating with Tom Taylor. There's a couple of scenes in Dick's apartment, like over overhead scenes or cutaways where we see Barbara and Dick in the, the elevator. It's just outstanding. It's it's incredible. If Redondo keeps up with this kind of uh, evolution in his art and, and this quality of line work, he's going to be uh, a superstar. There's no doubt. I mean, th this artwork is really really something special so um yeah i'm with rocky we're running out of superlatives to uh to talk about this series and everybody seems to be enjoying it and for very good reason so uh if you're curious why why is everybody talking about nightwing just just pick the book up and you'll see why because it really is that good yeah no i i got nothing to add man it's just it's well worth picking up it's arguably dc's best comic book uh, on the stands at the moment yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, well, let's move on to uh, to Justice League number sixty one, Prisms Part Three, written by Brian Michael Bendis, art is by David Marquez, colors are by Tamara Bond Villain, letters by Josh Reed, and then there's uh, the backup Justice League Dark Story, which uh, is written by Ram V. Let me get to the credits. Uh, the art is by Zeromenico, colors by Romulo Fajardo Jr., letters by Rob Lee. Um, I, 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 I don't know how I feel about this. Like, it's Bendis, and so I'm, I'm not, I don't have high expectations. I'm not expecting it to be that good. Uh, David Marquez is solid, as always. You know, the artwork, the visual storytelling, all of that works very well. 
the color work is fine. Uh, I, I like the look of these. I don't know if we've gotten a name for these uh, these inhabitants of the other world where they have the kind of the red tattoo on, on the chin. Um, but, you know, Tamara villain does a good job of uh, the color work here. And, and I do like the way David Marquez renders these. I, again, I don't know what to call them. These aliens from this, this parallel earth. Um, and so, so I think that's fine. Like the, the artwork is, is top notch. Um, I, I, I have a hard time separating, like when I'm reading it, like putting aside that it's Brian Bendis, right? Like yeah. so often in the past, <laughs> he was lauded for his, uh, his dialogue. Right. And now it seems like that's his, his Achilles heel, just too many words on the page. There's all this extraneous, uh, conversation that just doesn't need to be there because again, David Marquez is doing a great job of telling the story with his art. But that being said, it, this is an interesting enough story to me. Like I am curious where this is leading, but probably tipping it back in favor of, of kind of dropping it. And I, I'm, I'm not buying this, uh, you know, full disclosure, I read the preview copy that DC sends me, but if I wasn't getting this preview copy, I wouldn't be reading this um, because tipping it back and, and probably pulling me off the book is the fact that once again, we're, we're hit over the head with Naomi. Like this should be the Naomi book, right? Like we're told how she's a mega and she's super powerful and, you know, maybe, maybe at least in her own world, she's more powerful than Superman and all the rest. And it's clear that this is all being built up, you know, it, in that way, it reminds me of Jeffrey Thorne's first issue of, of Green Lantern, right? Where it's all about the, the favorite character, Jon Stewart. Well, this kind of feels all about Naomi. It's just a matter of time until she saves the whole Justice League. Like, she, I will almost guarantee you that she's going to be the one that, that saves the day here and i just you know i get it she's got a tv show coming out she's certainly an interesting character a character of color and young and new and fresh but this is the justice league man this is batman and superman uh and and flash and green lantern and whatnot and i expect better um but i don't know what do you think rocky well i i have to say that um overall I'm like you. I struggle with the fact that this is Bendis and I got preconceptions. And uh, and I fought long and hard on this. I actually struggled when uh, trying to come up with what I was going to say because uh, I didn't want to sound like a broken record. But I will say that actually this is Bendis's best comic so far, uh, I think. This is his best comic in the run so far. There was actually a lot of, I thought, I'm being objective here, I do think this is his best character work of the Justice League since he's come to DC. Uh, he, in, in the span of one issue, only one issue, I was, I thought he did a really good job when the Justice League basically end up on Naomi's homeworld there and, you know, their powers are going awry. Black Canary is powered up. I thought the scenes there were, were really intense with Black Canary. I thought that was scripted well, beautifully illustrated by David Marquez. I even thought the dialogue wasn't that bad. It's getting, it's not as bad as I, I'm, I'm remember as it often can be, uh, Batman is his powers are fine because he doesn't have a lot of powers anyway. Naomi's powers she seems to be taken off the playing field. Uh, this was the Justice League sort of shone in this issue, but not so much Naomi. Naomi turned invisible; she was sort of taken off the field. Uh, 
protected by Batman. At one point, Naomi seemed to be suffering anxiety and, and, and Batman basically tells her, you know, say, you know, ducktails. And she says, what? And Batman's trying to distract her psychologically to get her mind off her own anxiety because apparently she has anxiety issues. And uh, strangely enough, the scene was a little bit corny, but again, maybe not as corny as Bendis often is. Uh, I thought Green Arrow, uh, there was a good scene with Green Arrow making, have, getting one up on his captors there with his uh, fingerprint, with his uh, bow and arrow being linked to his fingerprints and his own DNA. Um, what happened with Black Adam coming on the scene to help out Superman against uh, Brutus? I thought that was well played. Uh, Hawk Girl feeling powered up. Clearly being in this new universe is creating a lot of havoc with their superpowers. And I thought that was conveyed very well in the story. And uh, even uh, Zimbardo, Zimbardo, we haven't seen Zimbardo yet. We haven't, he hasn't been in this, in this story yet, but he's the leader of this world where the metahumans, the metahuman clashing destroyed the world. And so Brutus and his, and this McMurph character, they're looking for a new world to sort of take, to sort of take over. And, uh, and of course they want to take over our planet. Uh, I will say one of the criticisms I have is the fact that, I don't know if you noticed, but when Black Adam arrives on the scene to help out Superman, the next time we see it, Black Adam and Superman are both unconscious. We never see the battle between Brutus and Black Adam. Black Adam is taken out and we never see how, Bru how Brutus uh, takes out Black Adam. We, I kind of wanted to see that scene. It was like David Marquez. It's like it happened off panel. So I, kinda, I found that a little bit, uh, little bit frustrating because, you know, Black Adam shows up. And he says, unhand him to Brutus. And then, and then later at the, on the, on the, uh, basically on the, on the final page, we see that, uh, we see Black Adam's hand. Clearly Brutus has already defeated Black Adam. So, um, I think that, uh, maybe they just ran out of pages, but in any event, I thought it was a, this is one of the better issues. It's, you know, at least I got a feeling that we're finally moving somewhere. At least there was some action here. It felt even a little bit cinematic in parts. I liked the dialogue. In, in terms of, it wasn't as bad as how in as I remember Bendis. So overall, I got to give this higher props than I have in the past on Bendis. I've been so hard on Bendis in the past. I gotta. It would be unfair of me not to give him a little bit of props for uh, avoiding some of his pitfalls here. Yeah, I, t I tend to agree with you, and yeah, I, I I sort of feel like they probably didn't have space like you said, for that fight between Brutus and Black Adam here. It was time to end the issue, and they wanted a good cliffhanger. So they put that scene with Superman, and as you say, all we see is Black Adam's hand at, at the feet of Brutus. It wouldn't surprise me if when the next issue starts, we do flash back a little bit to the fight yeah. between Black Adam and Brutus, because that would make for a good splash page. Yeah, um, and, yeah. and actually, Bendis yeah. does that. Bendis has a habit yeah, of using yep. that flashback in his stories. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. That would be as I was next. My next point that would be a very Bendis <laughs> thing to do. Um, and and I, I want to be clear. I I also agree with you about the dialogue and that it doesn't feel hokey or as as you know bad as um, kind of awkward as Bendis's dialogue has felt recently. Um, where I have the problem with his dialogue still is that there's just too much of it. But you're right. It, it's better if, if we're going to get too much dialogue. The the least amount of awkward dialogue, the better. Like if we get a ton of dialogue and it's all awkward, that's even worse. So we're still getting a ton of dialogue, but at least it's not awkward. So it's a step in the right direction. Now he just needs to start self-editing a little more and let the visuals tell tell the story. So um, anyway, the backup 
it, continuing the story of Merlin with Justice League Dark, you know, we've got Etrigan, we've got Zatanna, we've got Ragman, we've got John Constantine. It's so much fun. Detective Chimp. Um, I think the art from Zerm uh, Meninko makes a lot of sense. It's uh, clean at times. It's a little more sketchy and rougher. At other times, we get a chance to see the Infinite Library, which uh, incredible job on the art there with what it looks like. Um, and every time I read Ram V's Justice League Dark, it just makes me wish it was still its own standalone book. That, that's that's what I want because I would be buying Justice League Dark, but I, I, I'm not there yet on on Bendis's Justice League. So, and, and you know, this is not the main story. We get far fewer pages of this, so it's just not worth it for me to pay whatever it is the six bucks for the Justice League book when when really I I just want more Justice League Dark, um, because I, I love these characters. I love the the interaction between John Constantine and Zatanna. Uh, I love Ragman, who's a, I feel is an underused character. I'm not the biggest fan of, of Etrigan, the demon, but uh, I like what Ram V is doing with him, and it, it seems like we're going to get plenty of Jason blood, uh, maybe just as much Jason blood as we get of Etrigan, which I think that that's a, uh, a great thing. I think it's uh, an un untapped potential with the character that not enough writers uh you know play into that and give us jason blood because he's a yeah. he, you know he's a very interesting character in his own right uh and i i want to know more about him and and get more of his personality and more of his actions and whatnot so yeah i mean i i was all in for for the justice league dark story it's only getting better um and that's despite the fact that we sort of know where this is going with uh the future state story and merlin and all that kind of thing but again, I, I trust Ram V. He's incredibly talented, you know, a, a writer who's a little more new on the scene, who's got some fresh ideas, and I trust him to make it uh, interesting and, and to keep us from getting all the way down that path where we ended up in Future State with Dr. Fade and Merlin and, and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, I'm enjoying this for sure. Yeah, this is one of those uh, – this is one of those uh, – it's almost like a fine wine. It, it's something where – so much information is crammed in a, in a short number of pages and I, the art is really grow, growing on me. I mean, the, you mentioned before the, I mean, the double page spread it's, it's, I'm not showing it as a double page spread here, but w this library, I mean, w w you know, <laughs> just an incredible rendering, you know, uh, I got to tell you Zermanico as an artist, it, I'm an, as impressed with him as I am with, uh, uh, Fernando Blanco on, on Catwoman. It just, you know, I, there's always something more to be impressed. Every, every issue uh, I get there, he's really bringing his A game here. And I love Romulo Fajuto Jr. He's my favorite colorist. Ram V continues to impress. I mean, good Lord is, is Catwoman is great this week too. <laughs> oh my God. I I'm really enjoying this. And of all the future state stories, I have to say that the one that I'm interested in the most and seeing how it, how it gets to that future state endpoint is the, the justice league dark, uh, storyline with Merlin and the co corruption of Jason Blood and the, the demon Etrigan as being maybe a key along with Black Adam in the pages of Justice League sort of remembering the past and being able to potentially change the future. It's one of the ones storylines that and plot lines that I'm most interested in. And yeah, I'm 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 really impressed. I'm really impressed with this. Yeah, I agree. Um hope hope Maybe that's one of the first uh, decisions Discovery, Discover Warner Brothers can make. Hey, can yeah. you give Justice League Dark their own book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You hear exactly. me, David Zaslav? See, I got, I got all the best ideas, man. 
I'm ready. Call me. I'll run DC for you. No problem. I hear you. Uh, all right. Up next, we got uh, Superman Red and Blue, issue number three. Uh, they didn't In the preview, they didn't give us um, a full credits page, which we, I, we Rocket and I have been noticing lately on the preview stuff that they ha- we haven't been getting uh, all the, the content. Like we mentioned last time, we talked about Wonder Woman, how there was no backup story because we didn't get a backup story in the preview. But there was a backup story actually in the book. We didn't get to get to talk about it. Also, in that incredible uh, festival of heroes uh, that had all the Asian creators and Asian characters, there were a bunch of pinups and whatnot in there that we didn't. And some character pages, like Rocky and, and I were talking about specifically the the um, I think it's Thai fam, the the Vietnamese young boy, who, Vietnamese Green Lantern. You know, people wouldn't know about him. They should have put his name on there. Well, he had a character page in the back yeah. of that comic and again we didn't get that in the preview so we didn't know so this is just another one of those things and it you know i'm not i'm not complaining you know we get these publicity copies so you know ahead of time so we can drop the coverage on the date this stuff comes out and we're incredibly grateful love everybody over there at dcpr um but it's not their fault you know it's just a lot of times the final stuff hasn't all been put together you know so they don't have it to pass along to us so uh, it's just a, a function of the, of the reality of the logistics of it. So, um, but we will give the credits as we go along because they are on the, each individual story. But I just don't have that interior page that Superman Red Blue normally has that lists all the stories and cover credits and whatnot. So the first one is my favorite one. It's called Deadline. It's written by uh, an author named Jesse J. Holland. The art is by Laura Braga, comic veteran. Uh, Hi-Fi does the colors. Dave Sharp does the letters. Um, so I was not familiar at all with Jesse J. Holland and no clue who the guy was. So of course I had to look it up. Like, why haven't I heard of this guy before? So he's actually an American journalist who has written some books. Uh, and he was also the first African American journalist assigned to cover the Supreme court full time. So this guy's kind of been around the block. Um, and he has written some young adult star Wars novels and, and whatnot, but I think this might be his first DC work and uh, I'll give him props because this is a really fun story. It's basically uh, Bruce Wayne and Diana Prince, Batman and Wonder Woman in their civilian identities sitting in a restaurant waiting for Clark Kent, waiting for Superman to show up. Clark just got finished um, doing some research for a story. He's on the phone with Perry White. Perry's like, "Uh, you know, I don't have my copy for page one and we're publishing in a few minutes. (laughs) <laughs> and so then Clark says, okay, I uh, got another call. I got to go. <laughs> Hangs up on his boss because Bruce is calling him going, hey, are you going to be late? Bruce, no, I'll be there. I'll be there. I, I got a deadline. I'm stuck in traffic, blah, blah, blah. And so Diana and Bruce actually make a bet a bet on whether or not he's going he's gonna to get there uh, in time. And uh, Diana says, he's on a deadline. I got a hundred bucks that says he doesn't make the deadline and get his story turned in on time and make it to dinner. She doesn't even say make it to dinner on time. He, she just says, make it to dinner. So she says, I got a hundred bucks. So Bruce Wayne being Bruce Wayne, obviously he still has his fortune here. He says, make it $10,000 and you've got a bet. So they basically just made a bet on whether or not Superman will make it to dinner on time. Uh, (laughs) And the hijinks sort of ensue from there because and, you know, once Clark hears about the bet, well, I'm not going to sit in a taxi in traffic, you know, and he changes into Superman. But, of course, he can't be Superman and fly from one part of Metropolis to the Daily Planet to type his story at super speed and then make it to the restaurant. 
in his Superman costume without stopping along the way to, you know, help out whoever needs the help. And being that he's Superman, not only does he help out, but he always takes time to be polite about it. And Diana, Wonder Woman even says, you know, I've been known to drop people off at a prison and fly away and let the authorities take care of them. You just wrap them up in a bat rope and vanish and just leave them in an alley. But not Clark, right? He's polite. He's going to take the selfie with the picture uh, with the people. He's going <laughs> to you know, talk to the police when he turns the people in and that sort of thing. So uh, I'm not going to spoil what happens, whether he makes it to dinner on time or not. Uh, but it's just a really fun story. Um, the only thing, and this is a super nitpick, and I imagine it might be because Jesse J. Holland read that um, they were one of the very early John Byrne Superman issues where uh, I think it was the Joker had stashed these lead coffins around the city because he made that assumption that Superman can't see lead. No, it's so that Superman can't see through lead. We have some uh, some robbers here who do the same thing. And he does comment on it. He's like, ah, um, everybody gets that wrong. And it, it's just, we've seen it done before. So it, it did yeah. feel a little derivative, um, but it's probably Jesse J. Holland, like I said, just wanting to homage something that he remembered reading when he was uh, younger and probably loved. Uh, but yeah, I thought this was a really, really fun story and uh, it's not perfect by any means. Um, but again, I don't think Jesse J. Holland has done a lot of uh, comic work and it is, this is a short story obviously. So um, when I say it's not perfect, the, the pacing could be a little better, but again, you have limited number of pages um, and he, he doesn't have a lot of experience, but he gets, he gets the important part right, which is the feeling you get, the emotion, the tone of the story, the way it reflects on who Superman is as a character. All that is done extremely well. So, uh, so props to him. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was really great and easily my favorite story uh, in the book. So, what are your thoughts, Rocky? Uh, yeah, I, it was like I said, the Superman Red and Blue. These were all short stories, and they're they're feel good, and it's it's a nice snapshot in the life of uh, Clark Kent, Superman. It's another reminder of just how crazy a life he has and, and how much pressure he deals with every single day and how he manages to, to juggle all those aspects of his life and still show up on time in the nick of time. Even as Clark Kent, not just as Superman, but as Clark Kent, he could show up on time too. And it's nice to know that uh, even, I suspect that Wonder Woman, even though she bet against Superman, uh, I suspect she knew that he would show up and uh, both uh, Diana and Bruce are having fun because all the money of their bets going to charity anyway. So it's, it was just a, it's a, it's a nice, I consider this a Trinity story, actually. It's a nice Trinity story. It's, it's how Batman and Wonder Woman view Superman. And it's, it's sort of a nice little, you, you get glimpses into all their characters. And these are three characters that know each other and they know each other very well. And even the callback there you mentioned with the the old Joker story where the Joker hold uh, you know hides three bombs and you know inside lead casings that that's that was a wonderful callback and and I'm sure this is someone's first story and they probably aren't familiar with that and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that have never read that original story that you and I have that is classic to us but it's a, probably new for some new readers so this was a very well done story and I'm sure it's going to resonate quite well with uh, newbies. Yeah, I, I agree. And Bruce's line about the way Clark feels about being a reporter, uh, I also thought that was handled really well. And, you know, this is there's a lot in here that is so much about being a reporter and, and journalism and whatnot. And 
you know, I, I just mentioned Jesse J. Holland being a, a journalist and, uh, you know, somebody who broke ground as a, a, um, a journalist being the first African-American to cover the Supreme Court and whatnot. So, you know, he's, he's probably speaking from experience when it comes to that. And there is that aspect of the story that is so, uh, so interesting and, and done really well. So yeah. uh, the next story is called Kilgore City. Um, it's written and drawn by Michael Fief. And I think he even did the letters because there's nobody else listed and the colors. So uh, this is Superman teaming up with the, the Justice League. There's a lot of other characters that show up. Hawk Girl, Cyborg, Booster. Uh, and it, it's kind of fun. I'm not the biggest fan of Michael Fief. His his art style is, uh, I don't know, very comic strip sort of, you know, very Sunday morning strip. And so I just thought this one was okay. It didn't really do much for me. I kind of felt like uh, I didn't really understand the point of it. Um, but, I mean, it, it was fine. I don't, I don't really have much else to say. It was just uh, yeah. kind of there. Yeah, I don't really have much to say either. I, I, I sort of like – this is the – he's got an artistic style where I have to admit the, the red, the red uh, white, and blue of Superman standing out in every page really works. I really like the color scheme with the, the way that it did on, on each page. I thought the way Superman sort of pops off every page and he Superman feels larger than life uh, reading through this. It reads very smoothly. It was a good read. I, I like the sort of Booster Gold. He, he nails the character of Booster Gold trying to talk Superman into, you know, advertising on, you know, <laughs> advertising on his, uh, on his, on his costume or his cape. I, and Superman, Superman is very, very traditional here. It's a very sort of predictable Superman in terms of always doing the right thing and everything else. And it was a very, um, it's weird, you know, cause normally, and I, I, I'm not trying to be, uh, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to give an, uh, to insult the, the style of art, but it's, it, it feels a little bit, uh, dare I say almost grade school to me in a way, because I'm so used to a traditional house style, but I have to acknowledge the fact that this type of artistic style is becoming more and more common in independent work and in other titles in the independent market. And even some, some like what I used to associate with, you know, maybe not so much manga, but there's this artistic style is, is becoming more and more, I think almost kind of like prevalent. And, you know, it, I have to admit it, it's, it does kind of grow on me by the time I get to the end of the story and, you know, it, you know, the way when some of the scenes are actually quite good, the, the color scheme uh, all together, this is, this is uh, like uh, the, the one scene where Superman is literally smashing through literally the heart of the Manhunter and, and ripping apart the cyborg Superman. It actually is very visceral. It's, it's actually violent, visceral. And again, with the blue and red, it really pops off the page. There's one scene where Superman's flying and a, a blue streak is used to uh, to uh, emphasize his speed, while the red is used to emphasize the damage done to the Manhunter, all above a black and white page with with these giant letterings of boom, you know? I mean, it, it actually really works well. So I got to give compliments here. I think it's put together very well. This is an artist that you know, he knows his strengths and weaknesses and he plays them to well effect in, in this story. Yeah, again, I think it's uh it's an acquired taste, this this <laughs> art. And uh, maybe maybe I'd get there, but uh the next story I I really enjoyed as well. It's written by Brandon Thomas. Uh the artist on it is somebody that I, I haven't heard 
of before. Uh, Barrett Pekmizke, Pekmezki, Pekmezi, maybe. That's yeah, uh, P-E-K-M-E-Z-C-I. He does the art, uh, and it's a very interesting art style, a little bit stylized. Dave Sharp's on the letters. Um, basically, it's the story of this guy who li- has lived in Metropolis his whole life, and Superman has saved him, like, any number of times, like thir- 12, 13 times. And uh, finally, he has the chance to return the favor and saves Superman, uh, and he's being interviewed on the news. And then um, some of the guys who he just saved Super, or one of the guys that he just saved Superman from actually shows up uh, on the, the television set uh, in the studio and uh, attempts to exact his revenge on this guy for saving Superman. And Superman shows up and saves him one more time. Um, but he also has to turn around and save Superman as well. So uh, it, it's it's a really fun story. It's a very uh, emotional and heartfelt story, uh, and I'm I'm left. I mean, Brandon Thomas. We uh, he he did a, a, an incredible job on some of the the stuff that he did in uh, in the Future State stories, and then we I don't want to say we were disappointed with his outsider story, but uh, in Batman Ever Legends, but it didn't blow us away. You know, like I thought there was room for for more there, um, but this really shows us that he has the ability to do a, a short story and put emotion in it and have it really resonate. Um, so maybe it just depends on the characters. Maybe he's more of a Superman fan than he is an outsiders fan. And he, he's kind of gotten the voice down or the tone down of, of how to tell a Superman story. Maybe he's still searching for that with the, the outsiders who knows, but uh, yeah, I, I did enjoy this one. I thought the art was great. Um, and it's, it felt very real to me, very grounded. And, uh, uh it, it's not, even though it's emotional, it's you know not overwrought. It's not over the top. Uh, it felt very authentic to me. So I, I quite enjoyed this one. Yeah, it, it was good. It was good. It was, it exemplifies Superman's relationship to the individual citizens of Metropolis in this case, centered around this one guy, Charlie, who, you know, it, you, you got to think that, you know, the citizens, it's probably a running joke for us comic book readers. How many times, you know, why does anybody live in Gotham city or metropolis? You think you're, you're getting in trouble daily and you're taking your life in your hands. Even if you go for a walk, let alone to work. And, uh, but this is a guy, the citizens of metropolis, the snapshot, this Charlie guy, he, he gets a pay to, he gets a chance to pay back Superman and help Superman and save Superman's life. Uh, when he is uh, shot with kryptonite from some, I guess from some, I guess, rocket red type villains of some kind and it's nice to see and it's um yeah brandon thomas i think does a reasonably good job i think he wrote aquaman didn't he future state aquaman yeah, he, yeah and yeah. and to my and point about the emotion i mean that that was a very the emotion and the relationship in that one you know between aqualad and um and andy you know yeah. was was done really really well jackson and and uh and andy um and so, yeah, I'm Brandon Thomas. I think when he has a good understanding of who the characters are, does an incredible job of injecting emotion into the story. But again, it's not, it's, you're not beat over the head with it. Yeah. The one, the one minor little nitpick I have, and it is a nitpick, is Ka- uh, Catherine Grant. Uh, Cat Grant almost has pink hair here. I know that they're probably 
they're 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 probably locked into an unwritten rule that you got to do shades of red, and so they made they gave her pink hair, and they can't go blonde, uh, because this is this isn't of course uh, this isn't called Superman, you know, gold and black, gold and black. That's reserved for Wonder Woman, but uh, uh, you know, Catherine Grant does not have pink hair. Uh, yeah. But uh, but and she, I don't know. I'm 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 sort of beholden to sort of like the more sarcastic Catty Grant. Uh, I like that interpretation of her. So I, I, I think that I don't think he, I don't think he uh, nailed the character of Cat Catherine Grant, at least not the traditional characterization of Catherine Grant that I'm accustomed to. But for what it is, the story itself that wasn't the purpose of the story. The purpose of the story uh, is a is just exemplifying the relationship that Superman has with this Charlie character, who's a sort of a random citizen, but it just goes to show that Superman not only saves the citizens, but he cares, he's genuinely cares for them. And at one point, he even it even says he even tries to have lunch with some of the people he saves, even though he, he can never finish eating because he's got to run off and save others. So uh, yeah, Superman is a pretty good guy here. And this exemplifies that. And again, it's in keeping with all the feel good stories that this, that this comic book embodies. And Quite frankly, man, for all the times I've, I've, and you and I both wanted some more hope into the DC universe, this is exactly the type of title that people should be picking up if they want to at least have a smile on their face. Because chances are with all the stories, there's going to be one story that resonates with you. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, next up, we have something to hold on to. It's written by Nick Spencer. Christian Ward handles the art. Dave Sharp on letters. Um, so this was, I, I liked this story in the end with what, uh, what Superman does, you know, that whole idea is something to hold on to. Um, and it's no surprise kind of the way that it ends. I do feel like it took us a little bit too long to get there. I mean, you know, we talk about some of these being short stories. This one almost feels like it's a little bit too long. Um, and, and if some of the dialogue could be cut out, if it could be condensed a little, think like lose a, you, you could easily edit out a page or two and sort of get to that end, get to the point of the story a little sooner, uh, I think it might read a little better. Um, but, but, you know, I've been uh, a little bit critical of Nick Spencer uh, <laughs> on Amazing Spider-Man lately about how long he drags out plot lines. Yeah. And anybody who's a fan of his Morning Glories series, you know he plays the long game. Um uh, you know, and obviously with his whole uh, Hydra, Captain America and whatnot, that, that played out for a long time. Almost, Nick, you, you got to be able to tell a story where you get to the point a little quicker, man. Um, and I think this is a good example of that. I mean, it's still okay. And the Christian Ward art, uh, Christian Ward, he, he uses a variety of styles throughout the pages and it makes it very impactful. And I, I like that. Um, and I, I like the message, but I just feel like we took maybe a page or two too long to get there. So I don't know. What do you think, Rocky? Uh, this was a little bit tropey, maybe a little bit predictable, but it was really heartfelt. And I really liked, I love the idea that, that, that Superman, you know, he's remembering, I, I love how con- Superman is, is going, he, he's going through an emotional moment here and he's, he's longing for his, he's trying to remember his parents on Krypton, Jarrell and Laura. And he, he does remember glimpses of them before they rocketed him off the doom planet Krypton to earth. And, but he just, he remembers moments with them. And in particular, a teddy bear that he is given by Laura, by, by his mother, which of course the teddy bear, you know, you can follow the teddy bear throughout the story. And it's this bright red sort of, I guess, Kryptonian teddy bear. I, for, I don't know if they have teddy bears on Krypton, whatever they call them on Krypton, but 
and it it's almost it uh, this is going to be an odd reference, but it reminded me a little bit of Schindler's List, where but a but a much different type of story. But where you have the the girl in the white coat and the black and white, you could you know you could see it. In this case, you could see the teddy bear throughout the story, and as as Toy Man sort of en- ends up utilizing this teddy bear as a weapon, and and it's kind of sad because this you know this something to hold on to this that's it's it's the metaphor is the teddy bear and it's something to hold on to and superman realizes that in you know at the end you know it's something he needs to let go of and i thought it was a just a beautiful message it really was a beautiful message and i want to give props to Nick Spencer. this is my favorite story of this uh anthology this one right here i really liked it you, I agree with you that it took a little bit longer than was necessary getting to the end. I do agree with that. But I thought that even with that extra bit of maybe some uh, decompression there, I think it was worth the wait. And with Superman sort of going into the vault and, and ultimately, I guess, retrieving another teddy or getting that teddy bear that he was letting go of because that was something that he had from his childhood. For Superman to give that up, one of the last remnants of Krypton to the to this young child that wants it that's his way of letting it go and getting rid of some of that pain i thought it was there's a lot going on behind the scenes here emotionally in the heads of superman and so i, I got to give props to nick spencer and christian ward on the art i thought was just excellent uh really excellent the color schemes everything uh it worked worked really well for me i like this yeah last story is called little star by james stoko and i know we we talked about him recently we covered something that he did um yeah, or- orphans, the, orphans in the five beasts. That's right. Yeah, that's orphan right. in the five beasts from Dark Horse. He's been doing that. Yep. So he uh, he definitely has his own unique style. A um, lot of detail in the art, uh, and this this was another one that it, it it definitely felt like a Superman story. It was just okay. I, I didn't don't know that I got a you know a lot from this other than it doesn't matter it, it, human, alien what kind of species or, or, you know, giant asteroid looking thing you are, Superman cares. Um, and that's, and that's the message here. So, yeah. uh, I, again, I thought it was okay. Stoko's art is, I, I go back and forth. Sometimes I like what he does sometimes less. So, um, so I, I love the, the way he draws this giant asteroid looking alien here. And, and for the most part, I like the way that he renders Superman as well. There's just one image of, of Superman, uh, kind of the, the on the second page where he looks a little strange to me. Uh, he looks like for some reason he's Asian. Um, <laughs> and I, yeah, I just, that's not the, the best rendering. Uh, but for the most part, I enjoyed the story. Uh, but it was another one where I just felt like, yeah, it, it captures who Superman is. He, he cares no matter what. Um, but it didn't leave me with a, a it's not memorable. I guess I'll, I'll put it that way. So yeah. Uh, any I, thoughts on, on this one, Rocky? Yeah. I, uh, I agree with you. I I actually don't... One of the things I love about these anthologies is we, we do get exposed to different artistic interpretations of Superman. And even though, frankly, not all of them are to my liking, there's something kind of cool to see, a, 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 you know, a different twist on a, a, an artistic style. And, and this one... I mean, it did kind of work for me. And I, 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 again, I, I enjoyed this too. It was kind of tropey. I mean, this has been done before with Superman, as you said, out, you know, always caring for life forms. He, 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 Superman cares for all life, not just human life, but humanoids and all life, regardless of their form. And, and he even ends up communicating with this almost like this meteorite type 
creature and he ends up utilizing some satellites from LexCorp to attach to this creature to create a homing beacon on the outer skin that he creates for this creature so that this creature can one day find its way home to its family. And again, very, you know, one, you know, a good story. It's a good story. And um, again, nothing, nothing that necessarily stands out. Although I suppose if, you know, if a future writer could maybe do something with that character re- returning, you know, I, I wonder if this character was at one day, you know, is related to Mogo in any way or something like that in Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. I can see, I can see that character cropping up in the pages of Green Lantern somehow and, you know, ha- you know, getting into a, f- you know, maybe meeting up with Mogo and having a conversation or something, who knows, but <laughs> that's me playing, uh, you know, playing script, uh, a future script doctor, but no, I, I, I liked it. It was, like I said, it was, it was okay. Uh, all right. Well, that does it for uh, Superman Red and Blue number three. Let's move on to uh, Batman Zero Point, Batman Fortnite Zero Point Part Three. Concept and story consultant Donald Mustard. Uh, the writers Christos Gage, pencils by Riley Brown, inks by Nelson Faro de Castro, colors by John Kalis, letters by Anwold Design. And uh, this has been a highly anticipated one because it's Batman and Snake Eyes. So, uh, what do you think of this, Rock? Well, this is uh, this is probably the easiest one to review, if for no other reason that this is literally just one massively long fight scene. This is arguably probably the longest f- series of fight scenes between two characters that I've seen in a comic book in a very, very long time. This is this definitely is the most decompressed issue of them all. Uh, you know, we. This this really did not move the narrative forward much at all, other than esta- other than establishing the fact that soup uh, that Batman and Snake Eyes are really cool characters and they're like equally matched. So whether you're a fan of Snake Eyes or a fan of Batman, if you're wondering to know who's the best, well, guess what? They are equals in every way. You know, Snake Eyes. We got the we got the Snake Eyes movie or the sneak preview of the. Uh, the trailer for the Snake Eyes origin movie just dropped, I think, today or yesterday. And it uh, looks to be pretty good, uh, played by an Asian character, which is ruffling some feathers for whatever reason. But it looks to be really good. And of course, Batman here, uh, great fight scenes, carrying on with the narrative. The It's narrated by who we I can imagine is a CEO of whoever is setting up all these characters to fight in this imaginary world. And... They've Catwoman's already managed to escape from last issue, but Batman, Batman, it's clear that what I will give Crystal's Cage credit for here and continuing this story is that whereas when Batman and Catwoman were fighting alongside each other, you could, we were privy to Batman and Catwoman's thoughts through their narration. Here we're not. Here we're just seeing through the art that Batman and Snake Eyes are communicating with each other, but we're not privy to exactly what they're communicating and what they're saying. And that's kind of cool. So we're not being spoon-fed, which it's a little challenging to the reader. You got to infer. And even the, their narrator, the, the these whoever's running this video game universe is sort of trying to figure out what Batman is doing because they're, you know, it's bat, you know they got to try to one-up Batman because he always seems to get closer and closer to escaping and... I thought it's played very well. A lot of respect is done to Batman here as a character. I think fans of Snake Eyes, fans of G.I. Joe will will really enjoy how much respect is given Snake Eyes. Uh, this isn't like this is not a complicated story by any stretch of the imagination. 
art's really good. This is a lot of fun. And I enjoyed this. And uh, again, people are going to be buying this for the codes, like like we've said before. But overall, I, I thought this was a, you know, I thought this was entertaining. Is it an absolute must-have of a series to get if you don't play the video games? No, it's not. But it is it is fun. I did enjoy it. I don't know what what, what did you think? Did you did you uh, did well, you get anything out of this long fight scene or what? <laughs> well, I, I I think that a lot of people that don't play the video game but are fans of either Batman and or Snake Eyes may pick this up because it's just such a cool like both characters are beloved, right? Um, and you you would have fans of. Of Batman, you'd have fans of Snake Eyes that could make arguments for why one or the other might win in a fight. And it's just a, I mean, what, this isn't a, a crossover or a fight that I ever really expected to, to see or, or have happen, you know? Yeah. And it could possibly swing the scale uh, in, uh, or the pendulum in one direction or the other on who, who would win the fight. Um, but to your point, you know, we've spoiled it here. Uh, they're equal. They're you, you, they both are absolutely incredible fighters, and I love that Christos Gage gave us kind of a third party who doesn't really know or understand these characters the way we as fans do, um, and even he acknowledges how incredible and how accomplished these two are, and how evenly matched. So you know, I absolutely love that about it. And the other thing that comes through and and becomes self-evident in the commentary of this third-party narrator is just what Rocky said about how even while they're fighting, they're figuring out a ways to communicate. They're realizing that they're, they're not each other's enemy. They're not who they should be uh, after, right? Like Batman is, isn't technically trying to defeat snake eyes and snake eyes is not technically trying to defeat Batman. They're both trying to figure things out and they're doing it in such a way through their fighting that they're communicating. And I just love that idea. I think it's, it's inspired and it's, it's great. And uh, I look forward to figuring out how they move on. I, I'm not sure if snake eyes is going to continue in the series or if he completely escaped or what exactly is going to happen. But, but this is a lot of fun and, you know, we're halfway through the series now and, you know, regardless of, of, you know, whether or not I was picking these up because, I think they're going to be worth something someday, you know, speculator market and whatnot. But I, I'm I'm invested enough in the story now that I'm, I'm very curious of what's going to happen. Who's behind it? What's going to happen? You know, we see Deathstroke show up right at the end and he can actually talk. So did, did Batman escape from Fortnite? Is he out of the video game now? Like what exactly is going on? I'm curious enough to know. Uh, to your point earlier, Rocky, about the art from Riley Brown. This must have been exhausting for him to draw because, yeah, one giant fight scene, and not it's not like he's just drawing Batman and Snake Eyes. There's all these other characters in the background. Um, there's a lot of detail in the background with vehicles and weapons and landscapes, and man, he's uh, he's pulling out all the stops. Um, so yeah, this is a, this is a whole lot of fun. Um, I don't play Fortnite. I never have any plans to play Fortnite, uh, but I'm interested enough in the story. I think it was done really, really well. Yeah, and I mean, you just tell somebody, hey, this comic has Batman fighting Snake Eyes. And I think, you know, nine, <laughs> nine out of 10 comic book fans are going to want to pick that up and check it out. Yeah. Uh, it may not, you know, have the satisfying conclusion that diehard Batman or Snake Eyes fans might want. Uh, but to quote Stan Lee, you know who wins in a fight between two heroes? <laughs> Whoever the writer wants to win. You that's know? Right. And clearly, Christos didn't, he wanted to say they're equal. And that's what we got here. 
Uh, all right. Well, on to the next book. Uh, speaking of Fernando Blanco that, uh, that Rocky mentioned earlier, uh, we're talking about Catman number 31. You mean Catwoman? by Ram V. <laughs> I'm sorry? Catwoman. You said Catman. <laughs> oh, did I? Catwoman. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Ram V is the writer. Fernando Blanco on art. Jordi Belair doing the colors. And Tom Napolitano on letters. Uh, yeah. This was an, an interesting issue. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are, Rock. Oh man. Um, uh, well, first of all, I just absolutely love the cover. I just really love this cover. Uh, I actually realized that I, I miss word balloons on covers. I wish we'd get them a little bit more. And I, I just, I really like this, just the cover a, just uh, Selena looking gorgeous and having a little bit of dialogue. And it's actually related to the contents of the comic. And you know, last issue ended with, uh, with, Selena Kyle entering this 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 scene this gala to infiltrate uh, to infiltrate and try to and essentially try to rescue Poison Ivy, and Ram V does a great job here of uh, not only I mean you really get a sense this is this does feel like a heist comic I mean this is I got a sense of almost like Ocean's Eleven this is like a version of Ocean's Eleven the there's there's sequences here where Selena Kyle I mean Catwoman is explaining at the beginning to this uh to this character miss uh, mr roy mr sidhart roy who basically works for simon saint who's experimenting on poison ivy that uh catwoman's trying to rescue well the issue starts off with essentially catwoman already successfully ha- rescued poison ivy and she's explaining to mr roy how she did it and you, that's where you get the sense of oceans 11 where you know they're, they're explaining what they did and how they pulled off the heist. And with the with the help of the stray cats, her strays from Alleytown, they really pulled off quite the heist. And it was so beautifully orchestrated and structured a story and put together by Ram V. And what I particularly want to give compliments to Ram V on is the consistency in his portrayal of Poison Ivy. Because Poison Ivy's character here, it's clear that her mind is mixed up. In fact, she even... She even uses the same line as she did in Swamp Thing issue three, where she says, Ivy, not the poison. So clearly, uh, poison Ivy, Pamela Isley's state of mind is the same as it appears to be in the same state of mental health in pages here of Catwoman as it is in Swamp Thing number three. So I like the character continuity and the consistency between the titles. That's what I always like to see between these with all the DC titles, because as someone like you and I, when we read all the titles, we get a little bit annoyed sometimes uh, when, when we don't, when we don't see that consistency. And I, I like that Ram V is doing that here and it really works. Um, this title is this series, this, the title of this story is called Misdirection, and it's perfect because, of course, it's it's misdirection throughout, and that's what Selena utilizes in order to rescue Poison Ivy. And uh, in particular, we you know we had that great villain that showed up uh, a couple issues ago that we didn't that didn't have a name, and she sort of like she looked like a honeycomb. Her she had a honeycomb design in her suit, and she could sort of like disappear, uh, almost like a holog- holographically and. She has she's she's given a name in this issue, the White Witch. Her name is Re, and she's the White Witch, and she appears to be controlled by Simon Saint. And Simon Saint here is he appears more nefarious in this issue than he ever has since the since we were first introduced with him in Future State. And what's interesting is that in this issue, for the first time, present day Catwoman is 
it, you know, becomes aware of this person named Simon Saint because she says, Simon Saint, who's that? Like, it's a new character on, on the play, on the playing field. And not only that, the other awesome character that I love, Father Valley, who had that great fight scene with the penguin, taking out the penguin's henchman uh, last issue or a couple issues ago, I can't remember, but he comes into play and he's apprehended one of the strays, one of Selena's uh, Catwoman's strays, who drove the getaway vehicle when they rescued Poison Ivy, and he's torturing the person to get information on Catwoman. So, man, Ram V is, he's taken all these moving parts, and I'm I'm so excited, like this, I'm really at the edge of my seat. I'm I'm enjoying this. I'm really thoroughly enjoying this. This is, uh, I gotta say, I mean, just straight up, I'm loving it. And I haven't even mentioned the art yet. Uh, uh, good Lord. Uh, uh, Fernando Blanco, uh, Colors by Jordi Belair. I just, like I say, this this really works for me. I uh, I'm I'm uh, for for those watching this on YouTube, I I'm I'm sort of I, I it's hard for me to do things at once here. I should probably uh, show some of the uh, art artistically. I mean, showing off the art in this issue. Of course, there's the cover B by Jenny Frizen with Poison Ivy and uh, uh, Catwoman on the cover. That's gorgeous. I'm sure the speculators will be picking that up, but. The action sequences here, I mean, the layouts, the design, like the color work. I mean, I got to say, Tom Napolitano on the uh, letterers. Impressive. Impressive. And uh, like I said, I don't know, man. I'm. This made me, this is, it, it keeps, he maintains the same level. This is really feeling like almost like a, a James Bond type of espionage feel with, uh, mixed in with a little bit of uh, some horror elements and some intriguing characters. What do you think, Chase? Yeah, I mean, I've been saying for a long time, Catwoman's the best comic that DC's putting out. Um, you know, Nightwing's really good too. If I had to choose between between the two, man, it's a, it's a toss-up. Um, and I wouldn't, <laughs> again, I'm not the biggest fan of, of Catwoman, you know? Like I, I, the whole reason I discovered this book and what Ram V was doing and, and how much it felt like a Michael Mann film, uh, who, whose films I love, uh, was because it, uh, Catwoman had a crossover, I think in issue 25 with the Joker war. And I, I read it. I loved the, the feel of it. It felt very much like a, like a Michael Mann film. Like I mentioned, Fernando Blanco art was excellent and I've stuck with it ever since. And yeah, I mean, the fact that Nightwing, uh, not the biggest fan, Catwoman, not the biggest fan. And those are the two best books that, that DC is putting out. So it just goes to show that it's not necessarily the, the character. If you tell a good story, people will, will come, they'll show up. And Ramvi's telling an incredible story here. Uh, the character work is, is strong. Um, the narrative is strong. Uh, Blanco keeps it visually interesting. Even uh, the color work from Belair. There's uh, one scene where I'm not sure if it's Mr. Roy or Mr. Waugh. He, Cause I think he is French, but he doesn't necessarily talk with a, French accent, but Selena speaks French to him at one point. But oh, regardless enough. of that, he he, um, what he does in this issue, and I'm not going to spoil it, uh, is it's pretty drastic. It's pretty. It, it goes to show his fear of uh, of Simon Saint, like how how much he fears any retribution for what Selena has done, how it reflects on him, and and what Saint might do to punish him. Uh, but Selena's reaction shot. Is is really uh, incredible, um, and it, it that I, I give a lot of the impact, the credit for the impact of that scene to, to the color work that Jordi Belair has done. So, 
yeah, uh, Simon Satan, least interesting char character of all. Uh, but to our point that we've made time and time again, uh, very much ties into Future State. And it's, it's clear that all the uh, books set in Gotham are, um, they're all leading down, you know, one one path, which is to the, to the magistrate. So like it or not, that's just the reality of the situation. We do see the the man in the trench coat with the uh, the fedora show up again. We're still no clues on who he is. There's nothing I can take from the visuals that make me think I have any idea who this individual is. Um, certainly not the question. Who you know normally when you see a fedora and a trench coat like that, that's what you think of. Um, but you can see this guy's features. You know he's not featureless the way the question is. So I, I have no idea who he is, and uh, I'm very curious about that as well. Um, also curious how long it's going to take Harley Quinn to show up, you know, cause poison Ivy's here. Harley can't be far behind and clearly Ivy has some, some healing to do from all the trauma that she suffered lately from being re reincarnated in the, the pages of uh, heroes in crisis to whatever unspeakable things, Simon Satan and his uh, subordinates were doing to her. Uh, and so I imagine it's only a matter of time before it's a, a Gotham City Sirens reunion and Harley shows up. Uh, and then we might get Ivy and uh, and Catwoman in the in the Harley book by Stephanie Phillips. So I, I guess we'll wait and see. But, yeah, this is a this is a great book. Um, Nightwing Catwoman are the two DC books that you should be reading right now. They are must reads. Uh, all right. On to the next book we're going to talk about. It was a whole heck of a lot of fun. It's The Flash, number 770, uh, written by Jeremy Adams. Uh, we have art by Jack Abair and Brandon Peterson, with uh, the last page by Kevin McGuire, which I, I missed that when I read the credits the first time. When I got to the last page, I'm like, that's Kevin McGuire. I didn't. And then I went back and looked at the credits. I'm like, oh, yeah, it says right there, Kevin McGuire does the last page. Uh, Michael Atea on colors. Steve Wands does letters. It's interesting that they continue to have Brandon Peterson do the pages that are set in present time. And they're bringing on these other artists to do the, the pages where, um, where Wally's, you know, jumping through time and, uh, and entering the bodies of all these speedsters. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure, like maybe they just figure it allows them to get, to be sure they can stay on, on schedule. Yeah. Um, but I'm a huge fan of Jack A. Bear. Well, so I don't know about I, you. I yeah, I was going to say that the use of Kevin Maguire on that final page I thought was very strategic because it really set the tone for the mood of what's what we're going to be getting next issue. So I thought that was very very deliberate. So I think oh yeah, I, I think you're yeah. right. I mean, I I think I think they made the right decisions. I mean, uh, artistically, the the way they've chosen to allocate the artist to certain scenes is I think has really uh, enhanced this narrative. Yeah, I agree with you. And Jack Abear is another one that I'm like, man, why, why aren't more people? Every time I see this guy's art, I wonder why more people aren't talking about his art because he, to me, his he's probably in my top three artists working right now. Like, I absolutely love his rendering. I love the, the shading. I love the detail. Uh, I, I, yeah, everything the guy does, I think backgrounds are very detailed. I mean, he he's an incredible artists the textures especially uh are, are handled very well by him so yeah i mean he he's an incredible artist and uh and overall the story i thought it was a lot of fun with wally jumping through time 
he gets a chance to punch Hitler <laughs> Hitler here uh, as he's uh, in, in inhabiting the body of Jay Garrick. So that was a lot of fun. Um, this does this story does feel a little bit uh, tropey. Uh, you know, in a way, it reminds me of um, there was a story back in the Triangle Era when the Triangle Era Superman first started. I think it was maybe it was even before the, the Triangle Era called Time and Time Again, where Superman was jumping through time and ended up in a lot of these same sort of time periods, uh, you know, World War Two and whatnot. So, I mean, th this isn't the most original idea, uh, but this art is so good. I kind of don't care. Um, and it and it is fun. And I do think that that Jeremy Adams is, is having a lot of fun writing it. If I had any nitpick or kind of negative, it's like so much of the story is focused on, on the events and what's going on. I feel like we're getting little to no characterization for Wally or Barry. And the book is called the flash. So uh, I wonder about, I wonder about that. There, there's just, there's not room honestly with, with what, with the story he's telling and how much action is going on. And, um, I don't know, maybe somebody a little more experienced might be able to fit some character moments in here or there. But I, I mean, I, I, to be honest with you, I have no idea who Wally West is to Jeremy Adams or who Barry Allen is to Jeremy Adams. Cause we just, we haven't gotten those moments. Um, we haven't gotten that characterization. Everything is focused on the plot, which isn't the best way in order to engender a long stay on a book. Um, you know, going back to, uh, Nightwing, what I was talking about earlier, about those little character moments that we get that endear the characters to us and, and make them relatable and make us care. You know, like the scene where um, where Dick, you know, the police interrogation, oh, I, I kind of want to know the answer to that question too. You know, what are we? Um, or, or you know, Tim Drake not realizing Barbara Gordon is listening in. Uh, you know, I'm on this line too, right? Like those little moments. And that, that goes to show in the hands of an experienced comic book writer, it doesn't take a lot of space to give us just a line here or there that allows the characters to shine through and, and endears them to the, to the reader. So, you know, no, uh, you know, I'm not faulting Jeremy Adams or, or what have you, because again, this is a lot of fun and the art is spectacular. Um, and it may, it may just be a, a matter of, of time and, you know, him gaining that sort of experience before he can, you know, make those kind of moments shine and fit in a little character here or there. Um, but overall I'm enjoying it. Um, I mean, when I saw Jack Abear's name, I was like, yes, I was very excited. I love Jack's art. So uh, what do you think about the issue, Rocky? Oh, man, there's uh, right from the opening get go when I with uh, President Roosevelt at the beginning, it reminded me of uh, All-Star Squadron. And I just finished doing my top 50. I did five videos of basically reviewing 10, 10 comic books each, my top 50 favorite comics of all time and all-star squadron is one of them and the adventures of the all-star squadron during world war ii and, and president roosevelt would routinely start uh this reminded me of that i i felt uh, i'm much more positive about this i i i feel that this is exactly i don't mind that the, the lack of character work of wally west and barry allen i think this is perfectly timed by jeremy adams because i think i just want a good adventure i want a good flash story because I mean, I've said it before, and I, I, I know I sound like a broken record, but this is a better Flash story. This Flash issues of Flash, I've been more entertained by The Flash than over 100 issues of Joshua Williamson. So, hands down, this is at least fun, and it's adventurous. Uh, you know, you know, as opposed to Joshua Williamson, you know, doing the same character uh, tropes uh, of, of, uh, of Barry Allen, every story arc, and relearning the same lessons. Here, 
here this is Wally West jumping into the bodies of various speedsters at different points in time, or at least going where the speed force takes him. And th- there's a lot of fun here. I mean, we had Impulse last issue. Now we have Jay Garrick this issue. And the way that he plays with time and the, the way that Jay Garrick, you know, they even talk to the present day Jay Garrick and they and Mr. Terrific and Green Arrow in the present are asking the present day Jay Garrick, you know, do you remember this back in World War II? And all Jay Garrick could remember is punching out Adolf Hitler. And of course, it's explained why. And what's extraordinary about this is, you know, he's team Wally West taking over the body of Jay Garrick through the Speed Force, working with the Ray and defeating Adolf Hitler, who has the Spear of Destiny. Now, I got to tell you, the Spear of Destiny is massively, it's a massively powerful instrument. So how on earth could 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 Jay Garrick and the, the Ray defeat Hitler with the Spear of Destiny all by themselves? It actually has a fairly decent and very simplistic explanation that I personally think is good. And that is the fact that the Spear of Destiny sort of overrides one con- one's consciousness but because Wally West and Jay Garrick are occupying the same conscious are, are there two consciousness in one form because of that speed force anomaly uh, the spear of destiny only basically rendered Jay Garrick's portion uh essentially unconscious not the Wally West version and that 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 allowed Jay Garrick ultimately to reassert himself and to knock out Adolf Hitler but but yet not remember what came before I thought Jeremy Adams, I thought that was a very great plot point. I thought he worked that well into the story. It was, it, it had, it had, it possessed verisimilitude, which is something that I feel, that I feel, given the ridiculous uh, comic book science of the Speed Force that Joshua Williamson never had at any point in the Flash run. I think he lacked the ability to make the Speed Force make sense. I've understood the Speed Force in the simplistic way that Jeremy Adams has explained it in these last three issues than I ever did before. And I, I know I don't mean to harp. <laughs> I, I know I'm harping on the, on the previous Flash run, but in my view, I'm really, really enjoying this. And you mentioned the art, my gun, Jack O'Bara, Brandon Peterson, Oh man, my God! And this is so great. Even even the way that they're rendering a skinny Jay Garrick while he's in prison. He's they're in prison for months together. You know, tortured by the Nazis. Uh, I mean, Jay Garrick had to suffer a lot. He was a prisoner of war here. This is actually serious. You know, uh, something serious is, is going on here. And and it's I, my favorite scene is when Ray. You know, you know the Ray is praying for for God to intervene because he's not a religious person, and that just then is where is when Wally West enters Jay Garrick's body through the Speed Force, and it almost it, to the Ray it probably seemed like a miracle occurring. And in any event, I thought it I thought it worked. I just thought it worked really well, and um, yeah, I I'm I'm absolutely loving this and how it you know how it ends ultimately. Uh, you know, defeating Adolf Hitler, and, and by the way, the artistic rendering of Hitler just nails it with the Spear of Destiny. I mean, it's actually nice to see Nazis in a comic book, dare I say it. It's nice to see genuine bad guys in a comic book, and writers not being ashamed to put actual Nazis in a comic book, because they're bad guys. It's actually nice to see for a change. And, um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this, and, and like I said, this reminds me so much of All-Star Squadron. I'm just... I have such a bias in favor of loving this. It's just, inc- it's crazy. And again, the the bright colors, man. I'm loving it, man. It's it, like I say, it's another reason why this is a great week to be a DC fan. Yeah, you definitely liked it more than more than I did. I think for me, the highlight was you know having Jack A. Bear on the art. Um, the story's fine. I, I do agree with you that it's a lot of fun. 
And I get your point about <laughs> a break from the kind of the over characterization of the Williamson run, but I, I, I still am curious, like I want to know what Jeremy Adams thinks of these characters. Maybe this is more of a palate cleanser first. So uh, anyway, on to the last book we're going to talk about, Wonder Girl number one. It's called Homecoming Part One with Joel Jones, writer and artist, Jordi Belair on colors, Clayton Cowell does the letters. Uh, I have a feeling you like this a lot, Rocky, so don't keep me in suspense. What are your thoughts? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, I, I really like this. This is, um, wow, uh, Joel Jones. I can't believe this is the same woman that wrote Catwoman because her Catwoman run, her 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 narrative, you know, the story that when she was writing Catwoman wasn't all that great. It started off with a bang, but didn't go anywhere. But man, Yara Flora is such an interesting character. She's done she's done such a good job of establishing the stakes here of a young Yara Flora flying to Brazil to Rio de Janeiro to find her roots because her mother, her, her, her aunt never wanted her to go back to Brazil. And that was one of the central mysteries is why, what's the big deal? Why does nobody want Yara Flora to go back to her home country? And it's, it's very quickly revealed that Queen Nubia of Themyscira, uh, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't want that, uh, Yara to go back to Brazil. Uh, Queen, uh, uh, I think it's a uh, Queen Faruka of a Banna McDowell tribe of where that's the Amazon tribe or Artemis that is associated with. They don't want her to go back to Brazil. And, and yet Hera of, uh, on Olympus, uh, the wife of Zeus, she, she does want Yara Flora to go back to Brazil because apparently Yara Flora is a weapon. She's a potential weapon that Hera can use to, uh, against the Amazons. And so it's very interesting and you really see the different types of diplom diplomatic approaches that the Amazons have. Queen Nubia wants to try diplomacy to convince, to maybe keep Yara out of Brazil. Meanwhile, uh, Queen uh, uh, Faruka of the Banner McNall tribe is not afraid to give the order to kill Yara for if you have to keep her out of, of discovering her, uh, you know, of of Yara Flora going back to Brazil and discovering her Brazilian Amazonian heritage. And, and, and then you have that, and then you have the incredible fashion. The art Queen Nubia is drawn so beautiful here is are artistically is it's, it's uh good Lord. It's, it's so impressive. I'm not, um, sorry here. Let me, uh, I want to, uh, for those watching the channel, I want to get to the, uh, I just want to uh, illustrate or indicate just how amazing some of this, some of this art is. But, you know, right at the beginning, you see a young Yara Floor stand up. I mean, she's a child and she stabs Ares. I, I believe that's Ares, the god of war in the foot. I mean, right away, you know that this is a, a woman that this is a young girl that even as a young girl, she is different from Diana. She is going to, she's impulsive, but she's brave. She's got bravery that goes along with her impulsiveness. And, and she's not afraid to attack. She's not afraid to be aggressive. And, you know, she, she has that trauma from a childhood when she remembers a fellow Amazon protecting her and giving her life because, you know, Ares would have killed her even as a child for attacking him. And again, it, it establishes the stakes. And, and even Joelle's, I mentioned the fashion of Joelle uh, Jones when she draws Queen Nubia uh, with Amazon's tradition only had, they were 
often they, they, they were lacking a breast. They had one breast cut off. There, there seems to be in, in the breastplate, on the breastplate that Queen Nubia wears, all in gold with a beautiful uh, a crown, a golden crown. But uh, the breastplate framed around, empty around the one uh, right breast of Queen Nubia, beautifully rendered. Uh, Mount Olympus, beautiful uh, Hera, and uh, the Banamagdal tribe. Uh, just artistically, this is absolutely gorgeous. Some of the qu- central mysteries in this issue, I thought, were, you know, at one point, I don't know why, but, you know, it. there's a couple of pages that show uh, Wonder Woman, Catwoman, Oracle, Batman, Harley Quinn, Nightwing, uh, Cassie Landsmark, the other Wonder Girl, and, and even the fairy that was uh, uh, a sidekick of Yara Flora in the future state, uh, along with Superman. Apparently, they're all supposedly aware of Yara Flora going to Brazil. I'm not really sure. Uh, but, you know, Yara mentions that she feels that everyone's looking over her shoulders right now. And there's there's a great two double-page spread of, of all the various heroes in, of the DC Universe looking on. And... And then, and then it's humanized because it shows her on a bus in Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> and again, it shows her impulsiveness running to uh, rescue a person who's in an automobile accident and risking her own life. And ultimately called into the sea uh, or, or she's, at, she's at this uh, waterfall or at these, at, on this river in Rio de Janeiro. And there's this almost like a mermaid song. This creature of the sea is calling to her uh, because she's obviously in Brazil and she's there for her uh, for her calling. And the I tell you, this is really raising the stakes. This is a just a wham bam. We're jumping into the fire here. She's absolutely beautiful. This character, I love it. And I say again, I've I've collected Diana Wonder Woman for four decades, and. This is this is better than Diana, and I've I've been uh, criticized on uh, in my own channel for saying that from various viewers, but I don't care. I love Yara Flora, man. I I'm loving this character. I don't know. Tell me I'm wrong, Chase. <laughs> I, well, you know, I, I may have had an argument prior to this issue because I feel like what we got in Future State, and again from this this sort of same creative team, um, was what was just kind of like I don't get it. Like I didn't. I didn't think it was great. I thought it was just okay. Um, it it kind of reminded me of jo- what Joelle Jones did on Catwoman, and and to your point earlier about it it being again okay, um, but not really bringing anything to the to the character. But you and and uh, and Trevor from Dark Knight Nation both seemed to really like it, and I wasn't really feeling it. Uh, I'm feeling it after this first issue. Yeah, th- this is a much more likable Yara Floor. Uh, it, and I, I had to go back through and look at the art because what I felt like was, uh, I felt more of a connection. I felt more empathy. She felt more relatable to me. There was a delicacy to her in this story, right? Like a vulnerability that allowed me to kind of, uh, relate to her a little bit more that she, there was a hard edge to her in the future state story, you know, like she's sort of walking around with a chip on her shoulder, um, that I didn't really care for. And so I, I thought, well, what what is it? Did she did did Joelle Jones use? Because I, I, I the first way that I noticed it about this kind of lighter feel was it, it kind of came through in the art, and I was like, what did? I remember on her Catwoman run, really thick line weights, 
And again, it, it gave it sort of this harsh, a lot of angles in the art, which gave it this harsh feel. And so I went and I looked, I was like, is she doing, you know, thinner line weights? Is that where I'm, I'm getting this sense of things being more round and, and lighter and more vulnerable? And no, she, she's using the same line weights, but she is using an art style that, that is less angular. Um, and certainly, you know, the costumes and the backgrounds and whatnot that we get here, they're, they do feel much more natural um, as opposed to having that angular feel that uh, I think brings a harshness to it. But the art is very much suited to the story because there is kind of a softness of to Yara Floor that is coming through in the characterization, which I give Joel Jones a lot of credit for because we didn't get that in Future State. And again, that's, you know, who knows how far along in the future, maybe Yara's been through a lot, maybe she's a little more cynical. This is, you know, earlier on in her career, she's still learning. Uh, and there is a softness to her here that I really like. So to my to my great surprise, I really enjoyed this issue. I, I read this last because I honestly wasn't looking forward to it. <laughs> read everything else first. I was like, uh, now I got to read Wonder Girl. It's just going to be meh. But I, I thought it was above average. I thought the art was spectacular. Um, I'm very curious about, you know, why Yara Flor was wouldn't be allowed to set foot in in brazil you know why would she not be allowed to go home what has that triggered because clearly it's triggered something um and so i'm very curious to know about that and this whole idea of bringing in uh you know the gods from olympus and the tribe from brazil and you know the the uh, traditional amazonian tribe at, in themiscara like how does it how is this all going to play out um and I, you know, I look, I do look forward to the eventual because you know it's going to happen. It may be twenty issues down the line, it may be fifty. I look very much forward to the uh, the Yara Floor Diana Prince Wonder Woman crossover. Um, and who, who knows? I guess we'll 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 wait and see. Um, so all that being said, I did enjoy the issue. For me, Cassie Sandsmark is still my favorite Wonder Girl. <laughs> yeah. So. We'll see if Yara Flora can uh, can overtake her, but uh, but yeah, I thought it was great. I I thought Joel Jones did an incredible job. Jordi Belair on the colors, really solid issue. So, uh, all right, everybody. In addition to the books that we talked about, there are a, a couple of other things coming out from DC this week. The Legends of the Dark Knight digital series has its first collection uh, with a story from Derek Robertson. He also does the cover. So that has its first issue hitting stands uh, this week. And then there's also a number of collections. Dark Knight, Death Metal, War of the Multiverses, Trade Paperback is out this week. That collects two of the, the uh, anthology one-shots from Dark Knight's Death Metal, the last stories of the DC Universe, and War of the Multiverses. So if you're curious about either of those, there's also Young Justice Animated Series Book 2, which collects Young Justice number 14 through 25, uh, the Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy miniseries from a few years ago, written by Jody Hauser with art by Adriana Mello. All six issues are collected in trade. And then finally, there's a Shazam, the world's mightiest mortal hardcover. This is volume three. It collects stories from world's finest comics, number 253 to 270 and 272 to 282, as well as adventure comics, number 491 and 492. So uh, plenty of good DC content out there this week. Uh, and uh, hopefully we're going to be on to better days with uh, DC merging with Discovery and AT&T uh, no longer being involved in the day-to-day -day 
decisions and operations of uh, of DC Comics. So we look forward to that. Uh, well, you mentioned finally getting that uh, that series up, Rocky, for your 50 favorite books. Anything else you want to plug uh, as we head to the finish line here? Uh, I, I actually I'm going to be doing my uh, I'm probably going to be doing my top but. Uh, a series of top 20 uh, female orientated covers. I realized that I have a, I probably have about 300 covers that I just like just really cool looking covers that are obscure covers going back 40 years. And I've, and I, I got a separate pile of that just comic book covers that I think deserve more spec love and uh, very selfishly uh, deciding that I think they deserve more love. Uh, and uh, I, I really quite enjoyed that. I really quite enjoyed going through my collection and I, uh, yeah, it's it's fun, it's especially on when when it's too damn hot outside. I can take a box outside and just go through it and drink beer on a beautiful sunny day, a spring slash summer day, and life is good, my friend. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, well, coming up tomorrow on the Comic Source, obviously we have our new Comics Wednesday episode, which is spoiler free. So be sure you join us for that. Uh, Radiant Black number four drops tomorrow with big big doings. I've already read it. Man, if you if you're not reading Radiant Black, perfect issue to jump on because uh, you're you're not going to want to miss it. It's fantastic. Uh, beyond that, I also have a Kickstarter spotlight with the uh, legendary Liam Sharp, who has a Kickstarter going on right now for his art book. It's absolutely incredible. It is. Uh, yeah. So be sure you join us for that. He's going to talk uh, about what's in the book. He's going to talk a little bit about his career and uh, talk a little bit about stretch goals. They're almost uh, to the first one which is basically a free, a free comic for everybody. Uh, Liam's first uh, sort of foray into to create her own self-publishing uh, for a, a new property. So be sure you join us for that. Uh, beyond that, yeah, just uh, plugging along. Yeah, I, I want to give a shout out to your, your interview with Matt Kent there uh, of uh, Bad Idea. That was, a, that was a good interview. I uh, encourage people to check that out. Hey, on your channel. Yeah, thanks for that. I, I, I'd forgotten about that. Matt had a had a lot of fun uh, coming on the show and talking about ENIAC and Walesville and uh, rocks and minerals, uh, all from, <laughs> from Bad Idea. And then at, at the end, my daughter and one of her friends who love Walesville uh, even jumped on uh, to give their thoughts. That was a, a lot of fun. I had promised uh, co-publisher uh, and editor-in-chief over there, uh, or executive editor, Warren Simons over at Bad Idea, that I would let him know what my daughter thought of bad ideas first all ages book and, and she loved it she's walking around quoting lines from it uh the whole week you know what's a whale and what's a father and uh stop pooping on my roof and you're gonna need a roof for your roof roof yeah she she really dug it so that was that was great so yeah encourage everybody to go go check that out again it's available both on the youtube channel as well as uh all po podcast platforms so uh i think that's gonna do it for this episode uh, Rocky and I want to thank everybody for your support as always. Uh, be sure if you are checking it out on YouTube or uh, if you're checking it out on the podcast, head over to YouTube, give Rocky's Comic Boom channel uh, a subscription. He produces a lot of great content. Uh, so you can check out his uh, 50 favorite comics, uh, sentimental reasons and whatnot. Uh, it's a great series. I'm looking forward to checking it out myself. So be sure you give him a subscribe, smash that like button, hit that notification bell so you know when new episodes come out. And that's going to do it, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. 
Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.